Welcome to the Insights Podcast. Joining me on the show today is James Hewitt. James is a human performance scientist, and for over 15 years, he's been working with a range of clients, Formula One teams to Fortune 500 corporations, to equip them with science-based tools to achieve sustainable high performance. This is the second time James has been on the podcast, and I'm really, really excited for you to hear this one. Today is like a working from home masterclass. Um, I asked James to walk us through the day of someone who's working from home, and he shares those science-backed tools for staying focused, avoiding distractions, and keeping your energy levels up throughout the day. He also offers lots of great advice for someone who wants to separate their work life from home life um, when you're not in the office. So enjoy the episode. I think the the strangest post that I saw over Christmas might have been from you, James. <laughs> Do you know which one I'm talking about? <laughs> Brussels sprouts and space. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. I was wondering where you were going to go with that then, um, but I was racking my brain thinking, what have I posted about? What could what could this be? Yeah. So, um, well, we might have spoken about this before, Sam, but I love space. I'm fascinated by uh, space travel, the aerospace industry more broadly, and you might not know, but Brussels sprouts could be the perfect space food. And you know, the British eat more sprouts than almost anyone in Europe. And they're an essential ingredient to many Christmas meals, but they might also be the ideal countermeasure to the physiological demands of space flight. So there's this very strange um, uh, score called the Aggregate Nutrient Density Index Score, and according to this, Brussels sprouts are among the top most nutritious foods in the top 20 most nutritious foods. And this is because of the combination of vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients relative to the calories um, in Brussels sprouts. They're also full of these things called flavonoids. And that's a type of plant pigment that's got antioxidant properties um, that help to neutralize free radicals, which could be particularly important in space where you're getting bombarded with all kinds of solar radiation. So this recent study that I posted about looked at the effect of enhanced flavonoid-rich diets during a 45-day simulated space mission. And they found that people who followed this diet, um, of which Brussels sprouts could be a really important part, had things like lower cholesterol, lower stress, better cognitive processing speed. So there's a practical application for us. Yeah. And that's that these flavonoid-rich diets, of which Brussels sprouts could be a part, could really potentially help to improve our health, um, as well as supporting astronauts on missions to Mars as well. So um, that was the post and uh, a, a bit of an unusual way to kick off our podcast, but hopefully there's something <laughs> useful there, either confirming that Brussels sprouts are great or maybe persuading a few people that they might want to, to give it a go. That, exactly, that's it. It's a great advertisement for Brussels sprouts, isn't it, for sure? And and, and I like them. Yeah. I know some people aren't a fan, but um, yeah, I definitely look forward to them in the, in the Christmas dinner. So I appreciated that post. Yeah a lot <laughs> that's good to hear <laughs> and it just kind of goes in with the um the the theme of your other linkedin posts as well which are always kind of uh they're they're catchy they're interesting they're all kind of science backed and i gotta say james you're like the one reason i open linkedin for basically <laughs> is because i always enjoy oh, checking your posts and i'm gonna 
I don't know. I need, I need to get on you to like to, to persuade you to get on all the other social media channels because I don't think you're on them, are you? Are you just on LinkedIn? Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I do have accounts on on other channels. So right. I've got an Instagram um, account and and Twitter or X as we call yeah, it yeah. now, not on TikTok. Um, <laughs> but um, but really, I just haven't had the time. And so, you know, LinkedIn, uh, I, I use that very regularly as you found. I really appreciate your feedback there. And I might experiment with a few other platforms this year, but um, alongside, you know, the academic research I'm finishing off and professional life and family and all that stuff, I've only really had time to invest in one platform, uh, but you know, maybe you can persuade me to, to branch out. I'll do bit. my best. I'll do my best. Cause I think, <laughs> I think uh, people would appreciate it for sure. But, um, okay. So today I'm thinking that we could walk through the day in the life of someone who works from home. Mm. Um, and what I'm hoping you can offer is like the, the approaches and the strategies and, and different ideas of like, how can someone who's working from home, how can they stay um, focused? How can they stay productive? How can they be calm? And how can they be as, you know, as, as happy and content as possible while working from home, mm. which more people are doing nowadays, aren't they? And I understand that for some people, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Some people love it and they say it's the best thing ever and other people just aren't a fan. Like so many people I talk to say, um, you know, I really miss going into the office i really want to be in the office i want to be around people mm. whereas other people are perfectly happy to be kind of working from home so it's interesting isn't it but i'm thinking yeah like we'll, we'll walk through the day and through each little point and if you can offer any tips strategies for each of those points then then that would be that would be cool does that sound all right yeah sounds like a really good plan excellent so morning this person wakes up open their eyes what now? What should they do? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I wonder whether um, I could set a bit of context before I dive into the tactics. Um, and you know, thinking about working from home in particular, it's a great topic because it's increased so much. Some data in, uh, suggests it's increased by about 500% in the last four years. And you know, a lot of my work is with organizations, um, high performers, but mainly with knowledge workers. So in terms of context, I think I'll give these tips for people who think for a living, um, who are going to be working from home, probably spending an awful lot of time on their laptop or, or computer. Um, but I do think there's quite a lot of challenges for knowledge workers and you know, challenges that maybe we can tackle with some of these tips. The lack of regular office hours or fixed procedures means that people have got quite a lot of discretion over when, where and how to work. And that comes with quite a lot of benefits, but also some downsides. Um, the roles are often information-based, so people can work wherever, on a phone or laptop, for example. But one of the big challenges is that this makes work boundaryless. Mm. You know, there's very little distinction between work and non-work time. So while we kind of work through the work day and talk about these different phases, I think it's helpful maybe to keep in mind this challenge that many people feel like they're always on. They're in this constant state of partial attention, struggling to focus on one thing as they're pulled in multiple directions with competing demands. And then, you know, that time at the end of the day, which was once about winding down and resting, is often filled with more emails. And so that opportunity to get a sense of mental distance from work is often decreased. Mm. And there's some really interesting stats around this that maybe we can get into. Um, and I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I guess my main point is that you know, rather than thriving at work, a lot of people feel like they're just surviving. And being always on, in my view, is a really big part of that challenge. So while we can dig into some of those details later, I think that a lot of the recommendations that I'll share 
will relate to tackling some of those always on working challenges. And, and I think if we can distill it down into one idea, it's going to be about helping people to switch on when they need to mm-hmm. and then switch off when they want to. So in terms of the morning, how would you start the day? Um, and uh, well, well, how do you start your day, Sam? What's your what's your kind of normal routine? So, I'm interested uh, in terms of your uh, uh, like if you've got a standard routine, and I've got a few thoughts on that, but I'm, I'm intrigued to know. Yeah, I've got I've got a I've fallen into a bit more of a standard routine, and it, it, the first thing I do when I wake up is clean my kitchen, which might be a bit strange for some right. people, but I find like I, I know that there are a couple of things that I want to do in the morning. I want to either meditate or do some kind of breath work. Um, I want to mm-hmm. read, ideally. It, it's been happening less and less in the last kind of 12 months, but I, I aim to do that. Um, and also, of course, just you know, get myself ready for the day, shower or whatever if I need to do. Mm-hmm. But I find that if I wake up and I clean straight away, it's like it gives my brain a bit of a chance to wake up so mm. i i don't go straight to meditate or i don't go straight to read it kind of like just eases me in and it just then it seems mm. to have formed like a good habit of me keeping on top of the kitchen keeping it clean as well um so mm. i'll do that and then usually i will meditate after that i might kind of plan my day this is all in kind of like ideal scenario um plan the day yeah um and then maybe I'll, I'll read, and that's usually with maybe a decaf coffee. I have got back on the yerba mate recently. Do, do you know about yerba? All right, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been drinking that in the morning, um, and then yeah, depending on what I've got to do for the day, it's either straight to the gym or it's setting up. Or if that's a school day, obviously you know I'm, I'm leaving for my walk to work. So it's something along those lines. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because this idea of a morning routine has started to become really, really popular. Yes. And, you know, um, so online, you've got all these kind of stories about people. I mean, you've got to wake up at 4 a.m. And if you're not waking up at 5 a.m. and, and doing X, Y, Z, then, you know, you're not winning the day. And, <laughs> um, and you know, this idea that it's, it's getting increasingly, I feel, kind of almost, almost religious yes. um, in terms of the way that people are approaching it. And so personally... I'm pretty relaxed about how people start their day. And, and I think that you know people do need to find something that works for them. And I've got some ideas that I'll share. I think there's some generalizable principles, but you know, I'm a human performance scientist. And often when I describe that title, people assume that I'm going to be recommending that everyone's kind of you know waking up, meditating, um, drinking a kale shake and kind of doing yoga before you know, the rest of the population is awake. But that's not really my view about what optimal performance might look like for everyone. Um, you know, there was an interesting study done recently about snoozing. And, you know, a lot of these kind of, um, I call them like zealots uh, who are out there on the internet, you know, try and make us feel increasingly guilty about, you know, snoozing, for example, snoozing our alarm. But they did this great study where they used a combination of psychological surveys and wearable data uh, across 450 people, which for a scientific study is actually a pretty decent sample size. And they found that 57% of the participants reported snoozing, and that's defined as using multiple alarms to make up. And it was interesting, there were a number of characteristics associated with an increased likelihood of being a snoozer, um, being younger, taking fewer daily steps, um, perhaps having a more evening chronotype. But the interesting thing that they found was that snoozers didn't sleep less than non-snoozers. Um, they didn't feel sleepier or nap more often. And, and also, there weren't any effects of snoozing on things like cortisol when we woke up, morning sleepiness, mood, or even affecting sleep architecture uh, in the night. 
So basically, the researchers concluded that briefly snoozing might actually be helpful right. in uh, alleviating or reducing what they call sleep inertia, so that sleepiness that we feel when we wake up, um, without substantially disturbing sleep. And it might be particularly helpful for people who've got later chronotypes, so they're more evening types, um, or for people who just feel a bit drowsy in the morning. So you know, the, my conclusion from, from reading that research and the, the, the scientists' uh, findings and observations is really, you know, we shouldn't feel bad if we feel like we need to snooze in the morning. And again, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's another indication that you know, what works really well for someone else uh, might not necessarily kind of work for us. But there are some generalizable principles. And one thing that I'd really strongly recommend people try is to get some bright light as soon as they can after waking up. A light exposure is critical for maintaining a stable body clock, a stable circadian rhythm. But it's interesting that the amount of light that we get early after waking seems to be particularly potent. So, for example, there was a study that indicates that 30 minutes of bright light exposure immediately after waking up was as effective as 60 minutes of intermittent light exposure that was spread across the first three and a half hours. Now, in this case, bright light means 5,000 lux. Now, what is lux? Well, you can probably, you're probably not surprised. I've actually got a lux meter. Of course here. you have. Uh, I'm just charging the battery <laughs> for it at the moment. And um, uh, uh, because it's quite a helpful demonstration tool in presentation sometimes. But lux is basically just a standardized unit of measurement of light intensity. Mm. And one lux is equal to the illumination of a surface one meter away from a single candle, which is quite interesting in terms of how they standardize that. So 5,000 lux in practice, which is that bright light we want to get in the 30 minutes after waking, is equivalent to being outside on a clear day shortly after sunrise or before sunset. It's not as bright as full daylight, which can exceed 10,000 lux or, or even way more than that. But it's important to note that 5,000 lux is significantly brighter than a typical office or an indoor setting where you might find that it's between 300 to 500 lux. So I would encourage people to try that, get some bright light. And if you can't get bright light outside because you're in the Northern Hemisphere, at this time of year, it's quite dark, then maybe think about the lighting in your home and some natural light mimicking bulbs, for example, or one of these sad lights, as they call them mm -hmm. sometimes, seasonal affective disorder lights. Um, because we're really just waking up, excuse the pun, to how effective and important bright light exposure is after waking. And I really think that that's something that could be universally applicable in terms of something I'd recommend people do as part of their morning routine, mm. particularly if they're working from home where there might not be that natural need to get outside uh, for a commute, for example. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so how might that work for, for someone like you, you know, married with kids, haven't you? And so do, would you just be stepping out into the garden? Like, is that okay for, for 10 minutes or something? Maybe take your morning cup of coffee or something like that? Like what what might it look like? Something yeah. like that. Because I guess some could hear that and think, well, I've got children in bed. I can't go for a walk around the block or anything like that. But could we just open the door and just just bathe in the sunlight or the, or the overcast day, which is maybe more common over here? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I think there's a number of different options there. Um, I'll tell you what I do in a moment, but um, you could just get outside if you wake up at a time where it is light enough outside already. So you know, that example that you gave, taking your morning coffee outside in your garden is ideal. Um, it could be a short walk if you've got the freedom to do that, um, or even just some time under some artificial uh, natural light mimicking bulbs right. 
which you could either kind of put in your house or um, uh, or even on a standalone lamp um, if you could. But I tend to do my exercise in the morning, which I'll talk about in the moment. So we've just got some very bright light in the garage, in the home gym that we've got. And so often my morning is under that bright light um, on my exercise bike for an hour. So I kind of combine the exercise and that uh, that physical activity and that bright light uh, in one. Um, and that's something which, you know, particularly if you can't get out the house for some reason, for me, I find that's a really, a really good combination. And actually, I can, I'll let you respond, but we can talk about exercise and why I think that exercise could be something really helpful to integrate in the morning as well, potentially. Uh, for many people yeah let's go for it if that if that's part of kind of the the suggested thing that someone might do in the morning and how it might look uh, for sure let's talk about exercise yeah so in 2015 um they did a really interesting study where they explored the impact of a short exercise session on cognitive performance and i think there's a number of reasons why exercising in the morning could be helpful um so one of them is that it can just be a very practical time to exercise into the day, particularly if you're busy. Mm. I mean, I personally find that if I don't exercise in the morning, generally the day will get away from me and I'll really struggle to fit it in. Um, but there is this effect on cognitive performance. So an exercise session in the morning could have a really positive impact on your performance during the work day and in this first block of work, which you know we could talk about in a moment. So in this study, they got a group of about 85 people and they assigned them to either um, a vigorous intensity aerobic exercise session or to watch a video, that was a control group. And what they found was that the exercise session group significantly improved their cognitive performance. And that seemed to relate to activity associated with the front part of their brain here called the prefrontal cortex. So that means there were benefits on things like attention, concentration, working memory, reasoning, planning, but even better, the results, the effects of this lasted for up to two hours. So this morning exercise session, which in this case was just a five minute warm up. 50 minutes of vigorous activity on a stationary bike. And so vigorous means about 85% of your maximum heart rate. And then a five minute cool down had that effect. But actually other studies show that even briefer sessions and maybe not even as intense sessions can have a positive effect on cognitive performance. So I often encourage people to think about how they might integrate that exercise kind of into their work day before it starts for those benefits it might have uh, on cognition. But, you know, one thing I wanted to, to mention as well was was maybe, you know, another popular way of starting the day, or it's getting, it seems to be getting increasingly popular, and that's, and that's cold water immersion. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> in the morning. Um, and I don't want to send us down a rabbit hole straight away, um, but I'm going to be controversial and I'm going to say, I'm not going to recommend that you start the day with an ice bath or a, or a cold plunge. Um, you know, despite what people may have heard, the research findings are not the slam dunk that many social media posts suggest. If, for example, there's a lot of posts about ice baths improving people's sense of mental clarity and focus. However, there was a recent review of the evidence. It concluded that cold exposure actually impairs cognitive performance, both during the exposure and afterwards. Now, there's another study which people are citing all over the place. They talk about it all the time. And this is the study that says that uh, taking a, an ice bath or cold water immersion is associated with a 500% increase in dopamine. Fantastic, right? Well, that is true, but those claims were based on a study that was conducted 23 years ago um, in 10 young men. And it was based on indirect measures of dopamine because it's very difficult to measure it directly in a human without killing them, frankly. Um, it's an interesting study, 
But it's really important to note something that doesn't really get talked about. Any event which increases sympathetic fight or flight nervous system activity, so that could be stress, could be exercise, it might even just be standing up, increases plasma dopamine concentration, which is what was measured in that study. So if you run cold water over your head, you'll get an increase in dopamine. If you go for a jog in the morning or do other some other form of exercise you enjoy, you'll get an increase in dopamine. And you'll probably get a similar effect. Now, there's also quite a few people who seem to be claiming that ice baths increase dopamine more than any other activity. And this claim has kind of taken on a life of its own and it's spread all over the place. However, just because something is said often doesn't make it true. And there's simply no evidence to support it because no one's done a comparative study comparing dopamine increases from cold water immersion relative to other activities. I also feel compelled to point out that cold exposure isn't without risks. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a good case that uh, Professor Mike Tipton, who's a professor of human and applied physiology at the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the University of Portsmouth, is the world's leading expert on cold water immersion. And if you're interested in digging into some of his work, he he wrote a great paper in 2017 with the title Cold Water Immersion, Kill or Cure. One example of the risks relates to a phenomenon called autonomic conflict. And cold water immersion can generate this because when we enter cold water, cold receptors in our skin are activated. And that increases sympathetic fight or flight nervous system activation. However, if we submerge our face or we get splashed, that activates our diving response. And that diving response results in vagal parasympathetic rest and digest activation. Mm. Now, the problem is, is that these two systems then conflict, hence the name autonomic conflict. And by inducing autonomic conflict, it's actually a very effective way of producing irregular heart rhythms, even in otherwise young and healthy people. And sadly, it, it might actually explain some of the tragic deaths which have been observed and associated with cold water immersion. So I'm not saying that no one should start the day with an ice bath. Um, there also may well be benefits. But so many people seem to be suggesting that cold water immersion is the optimal way to begin the day. I feel a responsibility to share that the benefits of cold water immersion might not be unique. Um, And also those benefits might not be causal. For example, other factors such as social interactions, being in a natural Mm -hmm. environment, the expectation effect um, uh, could explain the benefits that people experience. You, You could probably just do a short exercise session and get similar or perhaps even better benefits if you'd prefer that. So I'm going to get off my high horse now, (laughs) get off the pulpit. Um, And my conclusion really is that if you like cold water immersion, then fantastic for you. And if that's how you want to start the day, great. But I think it's really important to make an informed decision about whether those benefits for you outweigh the risks. And it's worth considering whether you could get those benefits through another activity, which might even be more beneficial with other benefits like exercise, for example, which actually has a lot of ancillary benefits associated with it over and above what you get from cold water immersion, also potentially with much less risk as well. So I know that was long, but honestly, this ice bath topic is so prevalent right now. I felt I couldn't talk about how to start the day without 
busting a few of those you myths. Have to bust those so, myths. That's what you're here for. for forgive me for that for that rant. Sam. No, no, and, that's uh, um, <laughs> that's what it's all about. And and that echoes something that um, there's a guy, there's an author, and he's a running coach on Twitter that I follow called Steve Magnus over in the USA, and and he talks oh, yeah, about he's great. oh, do you know? Oh, great. And um, he yeah. says the exact same thing, like there's other ways of doing this. Like you could do a really hard workout and, and other things that you, you mentioned. And I have to say, I, I was a huge proponent and you, of course you hear about it on social media and you hear the studies and it's easy to get sucked into thinking, Oh wow, this is incredible. You hear about the immune system benefits and how it maybe can help people lose, um, bo excess body fat. And when you're talking about mm. the dopamine, I've heard it being compared to the dopamine released, um, of, of taking cocaine. Have you heard that as well? Yeah. And you know what? Like some really credible people have said this and really credible people are making these comparisons. Oh, X times more than this, more than this, similar to cocaine and all this. And I'm like, that study's not been done. Right. It's like, it's just, it, no one's, you, to do that study, to, to make that claim, you'd have to get a population of people and you'd have to expose them to both of those different conditions. Sign me up. Measure, <laughs> so yeah, so you'd have to, you know, that you'd have to, if you could get ethical approval, you'd have to get someone to take cocaine, for example, um, and then there'd be a washout period and whatever. And then you'd have to get them to do cold water immersion and other things and then, and, and then measure. Because even though you know, the studies that have looked at dopamine um, uh, kind of increases associated with cocaine, and as I mentioned, there's that very small study that was done looking at dopamine increases associated with cold water immersion. Um, they're different populations, they're different methods. You, know, you can't make that comparison. And the problem is it's such a catchy phrase because to communicate science and findings, it's often very helpful to try and make things um, uh, uh, kind of relevant to the real world. You make a comparison. So like when I was talking about 5,000 looks earlier, that's meaningless really. So when you say kind of um, on a clear day outside after sunset, we can relate to that. In the same way, if you say dopamine increase equivalent to taking cocaine, everyone's like, wow, yeah, I can imagine what that's like. Some people have experienced what that's like. And it's very, very compelling. But again, just because it's compelling, doesn't mean it's true. And it frustrates me, to be honest, when you've got people who are otherwise credible scientists really stretching the limits of what is accurate um, and going beyond it, in my in my view, um, for the sake of trying to make a point. And I don't think they're bad people, but I think it really under it does a disservice to the great research that's going on and also suggests that maybe we know more than we do. Because actually, I think there'd be a great case to go and do a study and look at, for example, the effects of um, a vigorous exercise session relative to cold water immersion in a single population so that we could really answer that question, which has got the biggest release and what kind of benefits do we see? Yeah. So I'm very passionate about that. And Good it time. really does frustrate me <laughs> because I feel that um, it's really doing a disservice both to uh, the research, but also to the, the audience because those claims, you know, when it comes from a professor or someone, everyone's like, well, they must have done their research. It must be true. But actually, that data is not there. And I've asked these people about it. I've actually interacted with them and said, can you show me the evidence? I'm afraid to say they've not even replied to me. Uh, some have, but many have just blanked me. Because frankly, I've, I've dug deep into this. That data is just not there. Yeah. Oh, man, this is why it's so hard for us, isn't it? Because we there's just so many confusing messages. But I think the, yeah. the kind of the more I'm getting steeped in this world and talking to more people, you just take everything with a bit of a pinch of salt, basically. And also, like you said, yeah. we, we don't need to kind of over-exaggerate the benefits of things, do we? We don't need to 
breath work, for example, we don't need to say it's this magic silver bullet that's going to cure everything. Mm. We can just say it can help you feel a bit less stress and maybe sleep better. And that's enough. Like we mm. don't need to have all these extra crazy, um, yeah, cr crazy sounding benefits that they're putting out there. I think with, with yep. cold water, like you said, if, if someone likes starting their day, then more power to them. And, and I've definitely, um, gone through periods where that's how I've started my day. I've, I've jumped into the cold shower. Um, I do still like kind of washing my face with cold water because I do think mm. it kind of perks me up. And I've definitely experienced for myself and seen in other people getting into cold water. And I, I think the benefit is the I, I, doing something really hard that you didn't want to do. But like you said, that, mm. that could be exercise, couldn't it? It could be other things. But maybe it's just kind of a more practical and like easy and it can be done in two minutes. Like this is really tough mm. and I'm going to do this and get through it and then I'm out again. Um, and, and I know for when, when I've done kind of cold water, uh, like open water swimming with my, my sister and it's been really cold and I've been in there for, you know, a good five minutes, 10 minutes. I felt great for the, for the rest of the day. And, and that's just me. And, you know, there was no dopamine measurements going on or anything like that, but I know I felt great. So, I mean, I, do you still think it has its place and and people can get that benefit of overcoming something and then maybe thinking, oh, I can take that and out into the to the you know my professional life and think, well, I I was calm in this really tricky situation, so maybe mm. I can do that in other situations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know it's really important to say that I'm not anti cold water right. immersion or cold exposure and. You know, I um, uh, uh, I worked quite a lot in Finland, and uh, cold water immersion is a huge part of Finnish sauna culture. Yeah. Where you know you go in a sauna, uh, I used to call it a sauna. Then my colleagues rapidly corrected me, <laughs> um, and uh, and then you kind of ideally you go and jump in the sea, um, and uh, uh, and obviously you know all of the caveats that I shared earlier um, uh, a part of that. You know, the risk of autonomic conflict, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But yeah, those experiences, I I treasure those experiences. They're they're real highlights in my life. And whenever I get to go to Finland, you know, if there's an opportunity to do that, I will do it. And um, because, as you said, you know, there's that challenge um, of overcoming, uh, and also it's just it's fun and it's kind of exciting, and you get this elation and this positive feeling. And uh, so, actually, I, I do actually quite like cold water immersion personally. What I don't like is this kind of evangelical. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of uh, content which I see, which basically kind of seems to suggest that everybody should be doing it, and um, and that also you're kind of weak if you don't. <laughs> yeah. um, so you know, I could I could very easily be an evangelist of cold water immersion because I've experienced so many benefits associated with it myself. But I feel that a responsibility to bring the counter argument um, because there's so much, in my view, quite ill-informed information out there. But, um, but you know, the, you, you made another really interesting point, which is about this doing hard things. And you know, there's this great theory called this cross-stressor adaptation hypothesis. And most of the time it's applied to exercise. Um, and essentially the theory um, or the hypothesis boils down to the fact that when we're able to train ourselves to deal better with the stress of uh, uh, exercise and the exertion, that um, increased ability to kind of absorb stress and not be so reactive to it in particular. 
seems to cross over to other challenges we might experience psychologically as well. Because essentially, it seems to be training our nervous system so it's not so reactive. Um, so actually, we do want an increase in our sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight activity when we experience a challenge. But what we don't want to do is that it completely gets out of hand. And it seems that exercise creates this cross-stressor adaptation effect. And so I think it's entirely possible that um, cold water immersion might do that as well. Because essentially, again, it's, it's the same underlying mechanisms. We're provoking this sympathetic nervous system activity uh, increase in ideally quite a controlled setting, you know, whether that was uh, vigorous physical activity or jumping into some cold water. Um, but again, I think you know, there's benefits, but people should just be aware that you know, there's, there's risks as well as benefits. Um, and also these benefits are likely not unique. So, you know, if cold water immersion uh, has got the right risk benefit and, uh, and uh, ratio for you, you like it, it's really practical, fits into your day, you get some great effects, by all means, go ahead. But um, this idea that, you know, there's this optimal routine that we should all be following and cold water immersion in the morning is, is part of that is what I really react against. Um, because, again, I just don't think the evidence is there to support it. Uh, I'm all about finding the evidence base, trying to apply it to people and recognising the limits of it. As you said, you know, just recognising that there's some things we know, there's some things we don't know yet. And that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Should we move on with the day then into that kind of first yeah. uh, work stint? Apologies, listeners, if we kind of went away a bit off track there onto the cold water, but it has to be done. Like something I'm really interested in, something that you're really interested in, but we will get back onto track and, and moving through the day. Um, so we might move into the kind of the first work stint, I suppose. You know, I'm, yep. I, I don't very, I, I do the the podcast from home and my Fridays, that's my day to kind of do this kind of side of things. But the rest of the time, people know I'm a primary school teacher, so I'm not speaking from a huge amount of experience in terms of working from home. But I imagine, yeah, once you've got yourself up and you've gone through a few things, that then you will sit down and open up the laptop. And maybe that be, might be, what, 8.30, 9 o'clock, something like that. And you'd be working for two or three hours up to lunchtime. Mm -hmm. So, what general tips could you offer someone for that that first kind of work period? Yeah, so when while a lot of my research now um, is in organisational psychology, my background is as an athlete and a sports scientist. So I still often view the world through that sports science lens. And if you've done any kind of physical training, um, you're probably familiar with this idea of uh, heart rate zones or intensity zones. And so a while ago, I came up with this idea that we could think about cognitive work um, as a cognitive endurance activity in a similar way that you might think about something like cycling as a physical endurance activity and maybe apply a similar kind of intensity zone framework to help us to sustain cognitive endurance. And so I came up with this heuristic um, that I might have talked about before with you called cognitive gears. Um, but fundamentally, it's based on the observation that our alertness and cognitive performance, and as a result, our readiness to perform knowledge work varies through the day due to our chronobiology. And it's an oversimplification, but I'd characterise it um, uh, that we experience the day in three phases, generally, a peak, a valley, and then a rebound. Mm. And our chronotype seems to determine the order that we experience those phases. But regardless of the order, each of those phases has distinct characteristics. So that peak period is generally the best time for focus, for complex analytic and productive work with minimal distractions and interruptions. That valley in the day is ideal for rest, recovery and reflection. 
And the rebound is a really good time to get on with menial tasks, switching work, meetings, and most knowledge workers need to do that at some point during the day. So cognitive gears is a way to think about the type of knowledge work that's best suited to each of those phases so we can manage effort and recovery. And those three cognitive gears, again, you think about high gear for focus, middle gear for the switching tasks, low gear for recovery. So ideally, in my view, because most people experience the day as a peak, a valley and a rebound, that first block of work that you described when you know, you've done the stuff you need to do in the morning, you sit down to work, would be associated what I'd call, with what I'd call high cognitive gear, that peak period in our day when we feel most alert and performing at our best. And during that high cognitive gear time, then I'd be thinking about uh, really scheduling, ideally, your most demanding complex tasks that require sustained attention and minimal interruptions. And so there's a number of ways that you can facilitate that, but many people have probably heard about the Pomodoro technique before, that time management technique. But I'd recommend that people first think about those highest priority tasks that really require the, the, the greatest attention and concentration, and then break a block of time maybe an hour, maybe two hours if you can, into these periods of 25 minutes of uninterrupted work followed by a five-minute break. You can think of it almost like interval training for your brain. And it seems that that technique is quite effective at reducing procrastination, avoiding distraction, and it's very conducive to achieving states of flow and focus. I think the challenge is that while a lot of people prefer to work from home, Data from 34 countries suggests that uh, most people would like to work from home on two days a week, for example. But unfortunately, that same research has found that people actually experience quite a lot of interruptions when they work from home. It might be uh, not just kind of notifications from colleagues. It might be family members or housemates or pets jumping on your keyboard. And unfortunately, these interruptions really increase stress. So you can imagine your brain in some ways as like a computer with a limited amount of RAM memory. Each interruption forces your mental CPU, uh, that processing unit, to switch tasks, and that consumes valuable resources. So that cognitive switching that we have to do when we're interrupted, when we're working from home, it's like having too many tabs open, and each one of those slows that system down until eventually it crashes. So also in this study, they found that unfortunately, the stress that people experienced didn't just stay with the, in the interrupted person. It actually rippled through other people in the house too. So what can we do? Well, when you sit down to do that high cognitive gear work during that first block of work during the day, I think it's critical that people don't rely on self-control to resist distraction and interruption. They need to engineer an environment for focus. So that might involve moving into a quiet part of the house or apartment if they've got it, or using noise cancelling headphones. But I also sometimes recommend that people use something that I call the prime method to help with focusing in that high cognitive gear period, which is generally at the start of the day for most, period, for most people. So before that high gear work, I encourage people to ask themselves three questions. The first is priority. And that means what is the most important thing that you need to achieve in that first block of work, be that 60 minutes or two hours, for example, because establishing a clear objective can really help you to stay on track and not start to do other bits of work. You know, check a few emails, for example. The second step in that prime method is mindset. And the question you can ask yourself in relation to this is how can you perceive those challenges in that next two hour block of work? with a growth mindset. 
Now, one of the challenges that many people experience either working from home or in an office actually is with perfectionism that can lead to procrastination. Sometimes there's this fear about those highest priority, most demanding work tasks that they need to tackle. And that fear that they might fail or not perform as well as they'd hoped to can actually lead people to not start that task and rather switch and do lots of other little things because they get a sense of achievement uh, and can avoid that fear that maybe they'll get into that challenging task and not perform as they were hoping to. But if you can approach that high gear period with a growth mindset and and really approach it as an opportunity to learn, approach it with some self-compassion, with some curiosity as well, that can really help you to get into that focus work and resist those distractions. The third step in that prime method is elimination. And I always ask people, can you eliminate anything to reduce the likelihood of being distracted? I mentioned using uh, noise cancelling headphones, but a really practical thing that people can do is to shut down applications um, that are open because it creates a bit of friction. Um, if you have to open your Outlook or whatever email client you're using, rather than it just being there, you're less likely to go and check email and stay focused instead. You can also switch off notifications. I'd also say put your phone away in a different room. Uh, there was a great study that demonstrated that even the presence of our smartphone in the room with us can reduce some aspects of cognitive performance by seven to 10%. And it seems to be because some of our attention is always monitoring and vigilant because we expect new information to arrive at any time and humans are very biased towards getting new information. So engineering that environment for focus is really critical during that high cognitive gear period. So if people start the day with that high cognitive gear, they use that prime method, uh, which stands for P, priority, M, mindset, growth mindset in this case, and then E for elimination. Then in my experience, they're really setting themselves up to get more done in less time and also reduce the stress that they experience in the process. I think that is so good. So good. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's awesome, man. It's just like such a good um, way to approach it, like those those different things. And we're not talking about a crazy amount of investment or needing equipment or anything like that. There's just these simple kind of protocols, if you want to call them that, that, that you yep. follow. And I think, you know, you um, touched on something that I was going to talk to you about, which is eliminating distractions. Um, I mentioned to my sister that I was having you on and that we were going to talk about working from home. She works from home and asked her if she had any questions. And, and that was her main question was, yeah, how, how do I stop myself from getting distracted? And how do I, you know, mm. not think, oh, I'll just put the washing on and I'll just respond to that other thing. And, oh, there's a bill that I need to pay, you know, to do with the house. And I'll just sort that out because... Of course, all these things come up, don't they? When someone is working from home, mm. that you're just kind of looking around at all the jobs, like you mentioned before, that are completely separate to what you should be doing. So I think that's that's really interesting. Um, and to follow the, the, the prime method and thinking about your environment, just really, really useful. So thanks so much for walking us through that because I just think it's just incredibly powerful. Really good. You're welcome. I'm pleased it was useful. It's good to hear. <laughs> so... We've gone through that and we might, we've kind of done our stint of work and maybe now it's time for a bit of a break and lunch. And I guess what this could be a, um, a shorter part of our conversation, if we like, you know, we can just kind of, because I, I guess people have got very individual um, things that they do at lunchtime and, and diets and stuff like that. But I, I, I do have to ask about a, a bit around nutrition and whether there are certain foods that maybe could be um, helpful and um, I don't know, 
you know, helping with with focus and energy levels for the rest of the day. And maybe there are foods that we we want to avoid so that we don't have that energy crash in the afternoon. Um, so is that a, is that a fair yeah. question? Is there anything that you'd like to suggest? Yes, great question. Time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you know um, nutrition is a really complex topic. Yeah, partly because nutritional research is so difficult to do. Um, you've kind of got two choices, really. You can either lock people up in what's called a bariatric ward and control everything they do. And, um, and that can give you some good data, but might not necessarily represent how people eat in the real world. Your other option is to measure people in a natural setting, but then you've got the problem that it's very difficult to get people to adhere to particular protocols and people are very bad at remembering what they ate for all kinds of different reasons, <laughs> sometimes because they just forget, but also you get this what's called social desirability bias, where they don't really want to tell you what they ate. Um, but there are some things that we do know about eating and nutrition um, that can guide us. And one of the things that seems to be really uh, import, increasingly important is we want to try and eat in a way that um, helps us to, to feel full um, without having to overconsume calories. And so there's you know, three macronutrients, there's three big groups of uh, uh, the big groups of nutrients, carbohydrates, proteins and fats. And each of those groups of macronutrients, uh, they have a different profile in terms of how they promote satiety, a feeling of fullness. And of those three macronutrients, actually protein is the macronutrient that promotes the greatest satiety, the greatest feeling of fullness. So when you're thinking about your lunch in a really practical way, I often encourage people to kind of build it around a really high quality protein source. Mm. And, you know, it could be animal based or it could be dairy based or plant based. Um, and there's various different charts and things which, um, you know, uh, give you an idea about what complete high quality protein means. But if you did do that and it could be, you know, a, a kind of a piece of meat or a piece of fish or, you know, a selection of kind of beans and nuts uh, and pulses um, or um, uh, even quinoa or something like that, then you're going to set yourself up for not having that really hungry feeling in the mid-afternoon. Yeah, I think the big challenge that a lot of people have at lunch is um, they'll go for, you know, the traditional English sandwich, which often has a huge amount of carbohydrate relative to protein. And um, and so, you know, people sometimes think that, oh, they're having this kind of hunger crash, maybe associated with like all the bread. But sometimes you can really just shift that just by adding a bit more protein in. There's also a really interesting effect in terms of how you sequence or combine foods. So, for example, if you were to combine carbohydrate, protein and fat, then that has a very different response in terms of your blood glucose relative to something that was very, very carb heavy. So, for example, you could have the same amount of bread. But if you put some avocado and say some an egg on it, then um, you would see a very quite a stable blood glucose response generally. Um, whereas if you had you know just the bread um, without those two components, then uh, you'd often see a much bigger spike, much more variability. And so it seems that having stable blood sugar is quite important for our metabolic health. That we're always going to get these natural variations. Your continuous blood glucose monitors have got some benefits but they've led some people to be quite concerned about the fact that you do see these variations but i'd really encourage people you know to think about that protein and then adding some healthy vegetables to it you know the fiber also has a really positive effect on on blood glucose um, and then um, some uh, carbohydrates as well potentially but um, getting it from as natural sources as possible you know a simple way to think about this is that um, real food either grows, runs, or swims. And ideally, you want to be eating something that was 
growing, running or swimming with as few steps as possible between that growing, running or swimming state and what's on your plate. Um, so minimize processing and also minimizing that mechanical work that's been done. Because a lot of the time that ma- mechanical work, that processing, even if it's not adding stuff in, is stripping away fiber. That's often what's happened. And you know, fiber is so critical for a healthy gut microbiome. Um, you know, it's actually the breakdown, the fermentation of that fiber that promotes that healthy environment in our guts. It actually, uh, that fermentation process uh, and the breakdown of that fiber actually will promote um, the good bacteria and help suppress the, the bad bacteria um, because of the influence that it has on, on the pH actually of your of your gut microbiome of, of the gut environment. Um, so so yeah, so something that's real um, uh, in terms of real food, um, mostly plants, not too much is probably my simple simple advice and uh, and that will help. Dark chocolate actually seems to um, have a really positive effect on boosting mood and maybe even cognition too. So, you know, for me, kind of an ideal lunch would be something like, you know, um, some a salad, some uh, some green leafy vegetables, uh, maybe a few seeds on that as well. Uh, eggs is a great source of protein that's pretty quick to make, particularly if you're at home, and maybe a bit of sourdough with it as well, um, mm. or something. Um, uh, uh, you know, some sourdough bread, so you've got that crunch and that texture, and then you know, a bit of dark chocolate and uh, and some kind of probably a decaf double espresso to, to finish would be would be ideal and so people find their own way but if they follow those principles you know, i think that would be uh, a good basis for a, a healthy high performing lunch in my view yeah and it's good we're, we're focusing on the positives but i'm guessing the kind of the other message of that is avoiding the processed sugary kind of snacky foods which i'm guessing if you're working from home and they're in the cupboard could be so tempted tempting to get couldn't it like oh just i'll grab a biscuit because i've got another you know i've got work to do for the afternoon i'm feeling a bit low energy but it, it, are, are those foods doing us any favors or is it best to kind of avoid them <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i think the challenge is, is that they're kind of empty calories right. and um and so and by that i mean you're getting a lot of calories but you're not getting a lot of nutrients or fiber in there um and but i understand but you know, we want something to kind of perk us up, to give us a bit of a boost. Um, I often ask people the question, ask myself the question, am I, do I want those foods because I'm hungry or am I bored? Yeah. And, uh, and often there's this boredom component, there's a kind of reward component. So again, I'd be thinking about, it's probably not going to be that healthy. Can you find another way to reward yourself? Could it be kind of a, a nice coffee or a decaf, uh, some kind of decaf coffee in the afternoon or you know, a nice piece of dark chocolate? Um, and the easiest thing to do is just don't buy that unhealthy, highly processed stuff. Um, but that said, you know, sometimes I'm in a meeting with a client um, somewhere and they'll just bring out what looks like the most delicious plate of cookies I've ever seen. I absolutely loved cookie. I love cookies and baked goods. And if I want a cookie, I will have the cookie, um, but I'm not going to have it every day is really the, the principle behind all of this. Sounds good to me. Okay, so then we move into the afternoon. We've had our lunch and we're going to, I guess, like another two or three hour stint of work. And how would someone keep up their energy levels and keep up their enthusiasm? And kind of linked to that, I think it's really interesting what you said about how certain tasks are more suited to the morning versus the afternoon. Mm. You mentioned something about um, you might schedule your meetings and other things for the afternoon. So I don't know if that's linked, but if we could talk about um, that afternoon stint, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in that cognitive gears framework, we think about generally high gear in the morning. I talk about low gear, the valley in the day during that lunchtime. Yeah. 
So while you have that lunch break, you might also think about going for a walk or something as well, mm. um, you know, just recharging, restoring yourself. And then the afternoon, we're talking about this middle gear, which is often characterized by switching work and maybe more menial tasks uh, in some ways. So during the afternoon, we naturally aren't as good at paying attention for long periods. Um, our inhibition, something called response inhibition, is naturally lower. And so that means that we'd find it much more difficult to stay focused for long periods. But the flip side of it, that is that reduced inhibition can actually be really helpful for creativity because we're less likely to block away ideas. Um, we're more open, perhaps, to other ways of thinking. So more creative, collaborative work, like meetings, for example, um, really could be very conducive to that middle gear in the afternoon. So that's the kind of work I'd think about. Uh, I'd think about scheduling then. You might also think about taking a walking meeting in the afternoon. So there's some really interesting research that indicates that when people take a walk outside, it doubles their creativity based on the likelihood of coming up with a novel idea relative to sitting inside. So, you know, taking a walking meeting, if you're trying to problem solve, um, it could be something that's really helpful. You know, I think also it, you know, our mobile phones are called mobile for a reason. Mm. You know, often we end up kind of in meetings stuck in front of a camera where we could probably turn the camera off and go for a walk and listen in, or maybe even contribute uh, in, in perhaps even in a more valuable way. So really think creatively about how you work in the afternoon and, and try and schedule some of those smaller tasks, the things that don't require so much concentration, um, because it's natural that you're going to uh, experience that um, you know, greater difficulty in focusing for a long period anyway. But I think because of that, it's also important that people take effective breaks. And by an effective break, I generally mean a micro break. It could just be 10 minutes long. And it seems that the most effective breaks have several characteristics. They're relaxing. That means there's a decrease in cognitive load. So you're not working. Um, there's a, there could be some kind of cognitive component, but where you're distracted and doing something not related to work, like reading a newspaper or a magazine, that seems to be quite restorative. There's a social component. So um, if you interact with people, even virtually, about a non-work related topic, that seems to really help to restore us. Um, and then ideally, I think there is a natural component. It seems that there's a unique pattern of brain activity that is activated um, when we spend time seeing natural fractal patterns like leaves on a tree or clouds in the sky. And so I think if you can see some nature, that could be really effective. And I think it's also worth considering that people sometimes can't help but feel lazy when they take a break from work. Um, but there was this great study a couple of years ago that suggests that time spent resting could be just as important as actively working. So the researchers use something called um, magnetoencephalography. And basically, it's a very sensitive method to measure brain function and observe neural activity of people. And they did this when people were learning a new skill. What they found was that after each practice session, when participants were given a short break before continuing, their brains replayed the practice session 20 times faster than it was performed. And that process seems to be responsible for transferring the practice material between part of the brain called the neocortex, which is, in this case was associated with sensory and motor skills, and the hippocampus, which is the brain's memory center. And so that process called neural replay helped to consolidate memories, optimize storage and recall. So my message is quite simple, um, even though that little piece <laughs> was quite <laughs> complex in some ways. Um, next time you feel guilty about taking a break, remind yourself that it's essential for optimal performance. And the afternoon, that middle, middle gear, is a great time for taking one of those relaxing social 
active breaks, ideally where you might go for a walk outside in nature, for example, and uh, as well as scheduling those tasks that don't require um, such focus concentration that you might have hopefully done in that high gear period. Brilliant. So now we move into finishing work. And this was another question from my sister, but also from another good friend who works from home. And I think it must be common amongst people. And you've already touched upon it as well, that separating work and personal life. Like if you are constantly working Mm -hmm. from home and the laptop's there in the kitchen, once you've closed it, how do you actually get up, walk away and separate the two? Because I'm sure a lot of people, they've got a never ending to-do list that they, they could just think, well, if I just spend an extra half an hour or just an extra hour and go into the evening a bit more, then I could tick a few more things off while I'm here. But that that could just, that could be never ending, couldn't it? So how can people yeah. finish their day? What can they do? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, uh, unwinding from work was a big focus of my PhD research. Right. Uh, you, many people struggle with long working hours that end up interfering with personal time. Some data indicate that work after 5 p.m., which is classed as after-hours work, has increased by 28% in the last couple of years. To address it, I'd start with three steps. I think the first step is actually on employers to ensure that work demands are reasonable and don't compromise employees' non-work time. It's worth noting that there was an interesting study done in about 76 companies um, that found that every hour's every hour of managers work after hours translated to 20 minutes of extra work after hours for their direct reports. So leaders have a really key responsibility here. Um, But also I think we have a personal responsibility to make sure that that after hours work is vital and it's not simply out of habit. Um, But if we're really struggling, also things like motivational interviewing um, and motivational interviewing based behavior change techniques can help. Um, where someone would be speaking to you, for example, and they might say, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing about how um, you're able to switch off and relax after work uh, by you know, taking a walk at the end of the work day. So it kind of speaks to what you're hoping to experience. And you know, we haven't got time to go into that in detail now, but that can be quite effective. But the good news is that it does seem that we're able to train our ability to switch off and recover from work. Uh, There was actually a study done recently um, that looked at these deliberate programs to improve recovery processes. And so things like progressive muscle relaxation um, seem to be really helpful. That's actually associated with decreases in stress, tension and even burnout. And one study found that the positive effects of that um, remained even after three months. So that could be integrating a routine into the end of your day where you actually do physically relax and progressive muscle relaxation is one way that you can do that. Um, But there's also another framework that was developed by someone called Sabine Sonnentag um, called the Recovery Experience Framework that gives some quite practical ideas for how we can get better at detaching, getting that sense of mental distance from work, which is what many people struggle with. And it centers around four components, psychological detachment, relaxation, mastery experiences and control. And so the first part, psychological detachment, could be looking for ways to get a sense of mental distance from work-related thoughts. Relaxation could be that PMR method, progressive muscle relaxation I just described, but also ways to reduce cognitive load. Mastery describes how engaging in activities that offer opportunities for learning and accomplishment, like our hobbies, for example, can provide a sense of achievement that many people find restorative, as well as helping them to transition away from work thinking. And finally, control, certainly last but not least, having a sense of autonomy over what we do in our non-work time 
is critical for getting that sense of mental distance and improving our recovery. So it's really important that we find opportunities to shape that non-work time in a way that aligns with our preferences and what we'd like to do, even if it's for just a short period. So I'm aware that our time is uh, ticking on some. Uh, I've got some a few more ideas, but they would be my top ones. It would be about um, employers' responsibility, our own responsibility, and maybe looking at something like motivational interviewing, trying to think about what we'd like to experience from it, and then picking ideas from maybe that psychological detachment, relaxation, mastery, control framework to try and find ways to get that sentimental distance. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and like you said about that, the, the kind of the mastery and having a hobby, could that be kind of something that you've got set out in the living room? So once you finish work, you might go and you've got five minutes to knit or to do a crossword or something yeah. like that, just something that you can kind of separate the two. So I think that's a great practical exactly. example. When you said about the progressive muscle relaxation, are there things that people can follow? Is it something that maybe someone on YouTube can guide them through? Because someone might hear that and yeah. think, oh, like I'm not sure or how I do that. Um, is it kind of similar to a body scan where, again, you're, you're just slowly yeah. relaxing throughout the body and I know that there's plenty of apps out there that you can you can follow in audio and it, it would guide you through. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and great. There's lots of resources out there if you Googled progressive muscle relaxation um, and then try and evaluate the, the resources in terms of their quality <laughs> and uh, um, who's, who's, who's suggesting it. But it's a very well-established technique that seems to be quite beneficial for many people. Brilliant. That's brilliant. So yeah, maybe we can just briefly touch on um, the evening and going into bedtime. Are there a few do's and don'ts that will set you up for another good, focused, productive day the following day? Anything that we should do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think going back to the beginning... Getting that bright light early in the morning can really help us to sleep better at night. Mm. So thinking about that light exposure during the day is really critical. Um, but one thing I've got to say is, unfortunately, workers in what we describe as white collar roles, knowledge workers, where we get some of the highest rates of stress and anxiety, consume more alcohol than other groups in the workforce. And many people are consuming that as a way to try and unwind from work. But Unfortunately, alcohol creates this kind of paradox where even though it might help us temporarily wind down psychologically, um, it prolongs uh, physiological activation. It really impairs our physiological recovery. So ideally, we wouldn't drink after work. If we were going to drink, we would drink less and stop earlier um, uh, because it takes quite a long time for alcohol to, to be metabolized to break down. And ideally look for other ways that you can wind down that are non-alcohol related because even a glass of wine could reduce your physiological re recovery by 10%. And if anyone's used kind of whoop or wearable devices like that, they've, they've probably seen that for themselves. And the other thing I'd say is you know, people sometimes talk about, oh, don't use a smartphone or device within two hours of going to bed. It suppresses your melatonin. And again, our kind of well-being zealots love to tell us this. Actually, I'm like, show me the evidence because... The evidence indicates that that bright light doesn't really have that much of a negative effect. If the content is very stimulating, that seems to not be great. But actually, um, using a device, watching something to wind down can actually be quite helpful for many people. Um, there's a great uh, Australian researcher who's, who's done quite a lot of work into this, Michael Gradsar. So um, if you want, the ideal, the, the most important thing is try to find a routine that will help you to get that sense of detachment and winding down. And if that's watching Netflix, great. But turn off Netflix autoplay. The reason I say that is because when you get to the end of an episode, if you're anything like me, the next one queues up, doesn't it? It even gives you the opportunity to skip the introduction. 
get straight into it. And I can't tell you how many hours of sleep I've lost because I tell myself, I'm just going to see what happened because it ended on a cliffhanger. But turning off autoplay just creates that friction because you've got to go back to the home screen, you've got to find the next episode, and it can be just enough uh, opportunity for you, for your brain to recognise that Netflix is trying to steal your sleep. And so uh, you'll make the right choice and go to bed. So don't worry about the light uh, from those screens, but do worry about the stimulating nature of the content. And, and then when you sleep, it's really important that the room is as dark as possible. So as a rule of thumb, when you're in your bedroom, if you can see your hand in front of your face, then it's too light. And actually the room being dark, cool and quiet is really going to help you to set you up for a great next day in terms of improving your sleep quality. And then obviously, ideally, you want to be spending seven hours of sleep uh, at least, um, uh, which means being in bed for about eight hours for, for many people, because sleep really is the foundation for sustainable high performance. And uh, it's the secret to having a great day. Uh, and we could talk about that at length, but, but they'd be a few tips that could really help you. It's so funny that you said about the Netflix autoplay. I literally did that last night. Not joking. I logged, yeah, logged onto Netflix and went into the settings and I turned off autoplay. And it's also linked to what you other the, the other thing that you said and and Michael Gradizar, who you mentioned that um, mm. another sleep um, consultant that I had on the show he um, pointed me in the direction of his work and yeah just busted that myth around blue light and and really being concerned and because I was getting into the habit of falling asleep watching the US office on my laptop and getting a bit worked up and like, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be someone that promotes, you know, healthy well-being and all this stuff. And here I am falling asleep to, to um, Netflix as well. And again, like you said, it was um, that reminder that it, it's perhaps more of the, the content that people are watching. Of course, if you're scrolling through TikTok or Instagram reels or something, and it's like blasting out at you and you're being kind of stimulated, or maybe you're comparing yourself on social media, mm. I don't know, it would occur to me that that's perhaps not the best thing to be falling asleep to. But if you're watching something quite relaxed and in the case of The Office, something very funny, then maybe it's not mm. the worst thing in the world. But I, well, I did have it open yesterday and I thought, I'll just turn off that autoplay because actually it just just keep going. Yeah. And then I've fallen asleep and I have to wake up to the sound and then close it. And it's like, no, no, that's not great. If I finish an episode and I know I'm sleepy, I can just close the laptop, put it aside and, and have a better night's sleep, hopefully. So yeah, really interesting. Exactly. And a nice way to, to to round it all off just more of that you know evidence-based approaches but also practical and living in the real world um that's what it's all about yeah so exactly hopefully it's liberating for people that you know actually well-being performance don't have to be this super hard monk-like disciplined approach to life you know really often it's just about making slightly better choices in a few different ways yeah for sure thank you so much again for your for your time james this has been brilliant and like it's the second time you come on the show isn't it and um as well as persuading you to get on other social media i think i'm just going to be basically messaging on linkedin every week saying can you come back on james because <laughs> it's another brilliant oh, that's great i've really enjoyed speaking with you Sam. Yeah, i it's really appreciate it um if we've got time, I have like three of those quick fire questions I ask every guest, but no worries if you're yeah, go for you it. sure. Okay, great. No, happy to. So the three quick fire questions, are, um, yeah, like I said, ask every guest that comes on the show. First one is what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? I think it would be about growth mindset and the lesson that talent, uh, it's not all about innate talent because I was fortunate in some ways that when I was growing up, people would say, oh, you're very talented. Um, but that didn't necessarily set me up for success when things got hard. 
So this idea that actually it's about um, uh, uh, we can all grow and develop, that our fixed traits don't define us, maybe a bit of that kind of grit, that passion and perseverance towards our long-term goals, that combination, would have, that would have been great to learn that a little bit earlier. But it's worked out okay. But um, I'd certainly hope to instill that in, uh, in our kids if I can. Next one. What's one habit that perhaps you've introduced to your life that's, that's made a difference to your health and happiness that other people might be interested mm. in hearing about? Yeah, I'm still, I'm still working on this one, but I would encourage people to get into the habit of being the friend to yourself that you aim to be for others. You know, being kind to yourself is way more than just a throwaway phrase. I think it's an antidote to perfectionism, uh, uh, an antidote to a healthy drive that can put us on the track to burnout. And I know these are quick fire, but I think self-compassion in the way I'm talking about it has got three aspects. I think the first is self-kindness, treating ourselves with the same kindness and understanding that we'd offer a friend, something that I certainly struggle with. I think other people do as well. It's also about I think common humanity. So recognizing our struggles are not unique, that all humans experience suffer suffering. And then the third one is about mindfulness. I think it's about being present in the moment, observing those thoughts and feelings without judgment. And I think together, those three components can help us to be more resilient, cope better with stress, improve psychological well-being. Some research even indicates it could improve our cardiovascular health as well. So that habit of being a friend to ourself, uh, the friend to ourself that we'd aim to be for others is the one I'm working on or one of the ones I'm working on for 2024 that I think uh, many other people would likely benefit from as well. And the last one, if you could give everyone in the world one book, which book would you give them? Oh, this is so tricky. Um, assuming for a moment that we don't need to adjust for reading level or educational background, I'd probably go for Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, reason being that I think in this year, recognising our biases, making more thoughtful decisions could be more important than ever for societies all over the world. And I really think that this book can promote a more thoughtful, reflective approach to life and work that I think many people would benefit from. So uh, that'd be my uh, my recommendation if uh, you've not read it already. It's a big one, but um, it's it's worth it if you can get through it. It is, yeah. It's, it's quite dense, isn't it? But it, I mean, how long has it out, been out now? But it's still oh, at the time. top of lists, isn't it? Mm. All the time. It's still in all, featured yeah. in all those lists. Like, read this, you know, top 10 books to read this year. Like, it's always there. And, yeah. Yeah. Great recommendation. Okay. And where can people find you if they want to connect with you on LinkedIn? Yeah. Just search James Hewitt. Yeah, so uh, James Hewitt, a performance scientist or something like that, I'm down as, and um, uh, uh, that's H-E-W-I-T-T, and find me on there, I'm very active there, so would welcome your comments and questions and interactions. Um, I do have um, uh, a kind of Twitter or X account, uh, and I'm on Instagram, but I don't use it very much. But if you uh, if you want to get on there and encourage me to interact on those platforms a bit more, then then please do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, find me on LinkedIn, um, add me there. Um, I've got a newsletter which you can sign up to on there as well, um, where I share some of uh, thoughts like this uh, every couple of weeks, um, but would welcome the opportunity to continue the conversation with people if there's anything that's really stood out to you during this podcast. Brilliant. Yeah. Right. Thank you again for your time. Really looking forward to getting this one out there. And yeah, I think many, many people would find it um, invaluable. Just really, really good stuff. Thank you so much, James. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks, Sam. It's been really good speaking with you. Thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with James insightful. 
If you did enjoy the episode, then please do share it with friends, family and colleagues who you think would find it helpful too. You can also support this podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.